This is Annie Fox for Family Confidential, Secrets of Successful Parenting. My guest today is Dr. Elizabeth J. Mayer. Dr. Mayer is currently a professor in the School of Education at California Polytechnic State University, also known as Cal Poly. She's the author of two books, and she regularly publishes and gives presentations on related issues including bullying and harassment, law and policy, people's rights and inclusion to help develop safer and more inclusive school environments. Hi, Liz. Welcome to Family Confidential. Hi, Annie. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to have you. I see you've got a lot of books behind you, and I know you you, you teach in an academic study uh, setting. And um, well, you and I connected several years back around um, your anti-bullying book. And what I particularly loved about it, because I read a lot of these things, was it, it was really talking about gender and sexism. And we don't really hear that much about that that cause or trigger for for bullying or peer harassment in school. Can you tell me how you got involved in the work? Sure. Well, I was a high school teacher for five years, and I just paid attention to what was going on with my students. And I realized that a lot of the issues that were going on and that often other teachers weren't dealing with um, had, had to do with sexual harassment and homophobia. Was it and, going in both directions or just boys to girls? Um, it tend, boys tended to be doing the behaviors more, but mm-hmm. both boys and girls were being targeted. Um, I mean, it's definitely true that girls engage in that behavior, but it's often a little bit more subtle and covert and harder for the teachers to see and intervene in. So I think it definitely plays uh, around everybody is impacted by it. But research shows that boys are slightly more likely to be the aggressors, but boys and girls are equally targeted. So um, why do you think your colleagues in that particular school um, were not noticing it when you were? It's it's not so much, well, part of it is not noticing it because we are sort of steeped in this culture where sexism is very acceptable and lots yeah. of types of homophobic jokes just seem very mundane and normalized. And so many teachers just don't think it's a problem. Um, I also did a follow-up study, that's what I did my PhD in, is really trying to understand why teachers might not be intervening. And some of the things I learned is they didn't feel prepared. Like many times teacher education programs just don't give you the language to understand how to talk about issues of gender and sexuality and diversity of body size, which is very much impacted when we're talking about sexual harassment. Yeah. And um, and a lot of the teachers didn't feel that their administrators were going to be dealing with these things effectively. So even if they tried to deal with it in their classroom, it wasn't necessarily followed up with and strongly enforced school-wide. And they also feared backlash from parents and family members that if they had a very clear and strong message about, I won't accept this behavior, or you can't talk about gays and lesbians in this negative way, that there might be an angry phone call from a parent, and then their administrator might not back them up. And so they just didn't want to put themselves in that potentially vulnerable position. Well, that's really interesting. So what I'm hearing you saying is this kind of bias in terms of sexual orientation is um, is sometimes just brought to the school from home. <laughs> well, it's brought to the school from the culture that we from live in. From the culture. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, it definitely comes from the home, but the teachers are a product of our, our culture too. And so a lot of that sexism and gendered attitudes, a lot of it is not just traditional sexism of kind of males putting down females or objectifying women's bodies, but it's also about sex stereotyping of boys making fun of other boys who don't seem to be as masculine as other boys or girls who exclude or make rumors about girls who aren't as fashionable or into boys as some of the more 
popular girls. And a lot of that is gender-based harassment that is really damaging for kids. But a lot of adults just think, oh, well, that's just part of being a teenager. And that's exactly what we need to get people away from thinking because that's how that bullying and harassment is allowed to escalate and continue. Well, Liz, what you describe sounds so huge and so pervasive. That, that sexism, I just got an email two days ago from a girl who has very large breasts and she is saying, all guys do is stare at my breasts. And she talked about a time that she was at the mall and somebody she didn't even know slapped her fanny. And she said, I, essentially she says, I hate being a girl. Yeah. And, and it's like, wow. Um, what kind of advice can you give to a parent of a daughter who is being objectified in this way and, and, and the school is is not really giving clear messages to help her. Well, there's a couple things that parents can do, and a lot of that is really around role-playing and talking about, okay, what has happened to you that you didn't like, and let's talk through a couple different ways that you could respond that would make you feel empowered, let the person know that that's not acceptable, mm -hmm. or who can you tell about this behavior, how can you document this behavior, and give them a menu of options to choose from, but actually practice that behavior. So where they're saying, okay, so somebody has just walked past you and made you a comment about the size of your breasts. What are some things you would like to be able to say to them in that time? And then you could say, okay, you know, my eyes are up here. That's not acceptable. Or please don't stare at my body parts that way. If you do, I'm going to report you for sexual harassment. You know, giving them a range of just, okay. I don't like that, to I'm going to report you, to even, you know, sometimes using humor to, to deflect some of the power of the situation can be really acceptable. Like, you know, how would you like that if I spent all day tearing, staring at your pecs and didn't ever make eye contact with you, mm -hmm. right? So sometimes just role-playing with the, with the youth and giving them practice, using the vocabulary, using the words, and letting them know there's a lot of different ways that they can stand up for themselves without fully engaging without hopefully putting themselves at risk. But if they feel like they're at risk, like you, the example you gave of sort of anonymous street harassment where standing up might make you feel really vulnerable, you can at least maybe just document it. Keep a, a, a log on your iPhone or a back page of your notebook. This happened in this place here. Mm -hmm. And if it turns out there's certain places that you're going to that it's happening more often or certain groups of people that it seems to be happening with more often, you can document a pattern of behavior. And once you have that pattern of behavior, if it's involving peers at school or spaces at school, you can go to the school administrator and say, look, I have this, this pattern of behavior that needs to be addressed. It's not just a single incident. And, and by looking at it as a group of incidents that might seem small on their own, but by looking at them all together, you can see that it's really significant and having a lot of impact on students avoiding certain spaces at school, disengaging from certain extracurricular clubs and activities, feeling not focused in class because they're worried about what's going to happen to them in the hallways afterwards, right. all of those impacts. And so giving students the, the ability to just document and know that then they can have this document that they can then report. And then if the school does nothing, then they can go up the chain to the district and to the yeah. state if that, you know, because these are all Title IX <clears throat> violations. Now, so that's... Regardless of what your state is doing, this is something that you could involve the Office for Civil Rights in if, if you really now, this go to that is really. Level. Really, really important because often I hear from kids who have done this kind of documentation and they've gone up the chain of command to the principal and they get that you're going to know what I'm going to say. Boys will be boys. Oh, come on. Mm -hmm. It was a compliment. Right. <laughs> this kind of justifications for absolutely unacceptable behavior. Um, but when you say that this is against the law 
and and the school district is essentially liable for not addressing the safety. This is emotional and physical safety of the students that um, they can get in in big trouble, and and this could empower girls and parents and boys who are feeling targeted to speak up. And transgender youth, because there was actually yes, recent let's talk guidance about that. issued from the Office for Civil Rights this April that makes it very clear that sex-based discrimination is um, includes any kind of harassment that's targeted towards an individual for um, sexual reasons or failure to adhere to sex stereotypes. So that means that students who are transgender or otherwise gender nonconforming who might be also subjected to this kind of harassment are also protected under Title IX. So if you get the brick wall or the non-response from your local administrator, there is a Title IX compliance officer at every single school district in the country, and that ah, would be your next phone call. And if that know. Title IX compliance officer doesn't do anything, then go ahead and call the regional office, um, you know, the Office for Civil Rights, and say, I, I would like to make a complaint, and that will get some attention pretty quickly. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that these... Um these things are in place because I know students feel very frustrated and parents as well. So now we're kind of coming around the bend to the end of the summer and we'll be going back to school. Hopefully some kids who have been targeted have had a break from this during the summer, but they have to go back into the lion's den, so to speak. So can you give us some tips for parents about protecting their kids as they start a new school year? Yes, and this is really important because this is often what happens is there might have been something that flared up in the spring right before the end of the school year and the, the students just thought, okay, phew, I have a break from it over the summer. But as back to school comes, they're like, oh gosh, now I've got to face these same kids or I've got to deal with this kind of internet posting, whatever it might have been. And so we need to be very careful observers of our children in the home and recognize, are they feeling anxiety about back to school more than just kind of average, oh, you know, I don't know who my teacher's going to be. But really, are they losing sleep? Are they not eating well? Are they seeming to really withdraw or engage in other kinds of dangerous behaviors, which might be self-harm, cutting, not eating properly, all these other kinds of things? If you're recognizing these significant shifts in behavior, um, we need to find a way to connect with the student and find out what's the root find out what's going on with your child. And one of the ways I recommend doing that is not just sitting down, you know, kind of grilling them right before bedtime, being like, we have to talk, you've got to tell me what's going on. Because that crowbar method of trying to pry into your child's life often will cause them to shut down even more. Yeah, it's stressful. What I often recommend is trying to find a parallel activity that you can engage in with your child that doesn't require eye contact. Because adolescents, and adolescent boys in particular, oftentimes feel very... Um, limited in being able to express difficult emotions if somebody's staring at them and expecting them to stare back. So recommended activities could be just like throwing a ball around, going for a walk, going for a drive, listening to music, playing a video game, all these kinds of things that just give you a little bit more of extended time doing something that they like Mm -hmm. kind of gives you a little bit more of a window into their world. And hopefully that will might allow space for a conversation to happen a little bit more organically. Like, so how are you feeling about back to school? I know things are rough in the spring. What are you thinking about this fall? Gentle questions that might let them know that you're paying attention. And then when they're ready to talk, they might be more likely to open up and come to you. Look, I'm, I need to talk. But okay. if they're still not talking, I would recommend also considering getting a professional involved if those red flag warning behaviors are, are manifesting themselves in some pretty concerning ways. So parents need to trust their gut. 
be observant about the behavior. Notice the difference between, oh, gee, I wish summer would go on forever versus um, I'm feeling anxious about I'm feeling terrified, terrified. Good. Yeah. So um, have a conversation in uh, parallel play kind of thing. I was just, as you were were mentioning that, I was picturing me and my son um, prepping for dinner when he was in high school, you know, cutting vegetables and just casually having those kinds of conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, And say the the kid is forthcoming and and mentions, okay, well, you know, you knew a little bit about what happened, mom, in the spring, but it was actually kind of worse than that. And and this is what happened. And and, I I just really, I'm afraid that's going to happen again. Then what's the next step for the parent? Then one of the things that's very important and often overlooked is asking the child what is the best outcome that they want. Ah. empowering them like what would make back to school better for you what is it not being in the same class with this student or making sure this teacher is in your schedule or making sure the vice principal knows in advance asking them because oftentimes they know the culture of their school and the social hierarchies and the fallout and all those kinds of things better than we as parents do they get really scared it's like they they feel like if i tell you it will make things worse absolutely and there's a reality to that there certainly is that they don't want to bring more attention to themselves. They don't want to make themselves appear more vulnerable and more visible. Visible, So, you know, definitely get them involved in the problem solving. And if you can, get them to even document a little bit more specifically about what places were these things happening, who tended to be involved, what words were used, mm-hmm. and then be proactive and go meet with the administration or the student's homeroom teacher or what, whoever you feel is going to be your best first point of contact mm-hmm. to talk about what is going to be our strategy to make sure we start off this school year on the right foot from a preventative measure, not just like, let's wait until something happens and then we'll punish the perpetrators. That's not the approach that's going to help our students feel safer, right? Right. So trying to work with your school in partnership. Sometimes parents develop an adversarial relationship with the schools because they just call and they're angry and they're upset because they want to protect their kids. Oh, it's Mrs. Jones again. And the principal's like, oh, okay, it's another uh, phone call from Mm so-and-so. But if you could say, look, you know, I think this stuff is happening and who's being impacted? Are there ways we can talk about making the school safe for all kids? Okay, because that's, that's a really non-combative kind of statement to a, to a school administrator. You're not pointing fingers. Absolutely. Let's like, work together. Right. And it's not necessarily just about punishing the perpetrators. It's right. about how do we set this environment up so bullying isn't tolerated, so students know what harassment is, and so the teachers know how to intervene and how to report when it happens, because here in California, we have a relatively new law that requires teachers to intervene in cases of bullying and harassment when it is mm-hmm. safe to do so. So that's called Seth's Law, and that's going to be a, a big shift because of the first legal case that tests it, it's going to be interesting to see if teachers were found not intervening, what impact that's going to have on the school's liability and responsibility in these cases. Yeah. You know, the way I talk about and think about school culture, Liz, is that um, it's an organic thing that that is changing and growing and morphing with every interaction of every person who who's in that school from moment to moment. And when we turn a blind eye, either as a fellow student or as a teacher, and just say, oh, just go to your class or just pretend we didn't see it because we want to get to the teacher's lounge. Um, we are, in fact, contributing in that moment to a culture of acceptance of something that's not acceptable. So we all kind of are in this together. And and I think that what you say is is brilliant in that 
the um, non-adversarial approach of parents to school administrators. And, and you need to be persistent because they've got a lot on their plates. But um, I, I love what you say. If my child's being impacted, you better believe that my child's not the only one being impacted. Right, because just because they're the one who's the most visible target, everybody is absorbing that hostility and those exactly. negative messages. And the, and the fear that maybe I will be turned on next. Absolutely, which keeps everybody silent from reporting, from stepping up, from um, making sure that it doesn't continue. Yeah, okay, well, um, so I'm glad to know that, that there are things parents can do moving into this uh, back-to-school era and, and this this way of engaging students, getting them involved, asking them, you know, what's the best outcome you would like to see? And then um, to set up meetings. Um, and, and I would say also to go to other parents through the PTA to those kind of groups, because, you know, sometimes when people are talking in their own kitchens, they think, well, this is just my kid. Right. But if a group of parents are together and someone is courageous enough to bring this up, other parents might also say, you know what, I've been hearing the same thing. What can mm-hmm. we as a group of parents do in conjunction with the school counselor, with the administration, with the teachers, to make this a better place for all of our kids? Right. And you just you just need to document everything, every phone call, every email, every report, because that way, if you do need to go up the chain, you have a very clear history of Great. what you've done, what was done or wasn't done in response, right. and then that can make it even clearer for other folks who might then need to get involved. Great proactive. I like it. Don't wait until next spring to say, gosh, we really should have done something to make the school year better. We could do it now. Not. And if necessary, I mean, sometimes it's so extreme that if the school isn't partnering with you and the child is really feeling threatened and at risk, you know, there is that time to then reconsider, is the school going to be the best environment for my child to continue to grow and learn in? And right. do we have other options that we must consider? Right. Good, good. Um, it's all for the well-being of, of the student. Always. Great. Um, Before we close, Liz, I'd love for you to give our listeners an opportunity to find out where they can learn more about your work. Yes. Well, I have a website, elizabethjmeyer.com, where I have all kinds of information about my most recent books, news articles, links to current projects, specifically here in California. I have some good web resources for teachers about these new policies, about new curriculum reforms, things like that. And so all of that's on elizabethjmeyer.com, or you can even follow me on Twitter. I'm at Liz J. Meyer, and I love to connect with teachers and families and, and be able to share this this information and the supports they need. We've got a local coalition here in the central coast of California, and I'd love to help people figure out how they can, like you said, work with the PTA, work with their friends and neighbors to develop um, supports and resources to make sure they're not dealing with these issues in isolation. Excellent. Thank you, Liz, so much for taking time and also for the wonderful work that you do. It's always a pleasure, Annie. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Annie Fox for Family Confidential. To learn more about my work with tweens, teens, and parents, visit AnnieFox.com. And please check out my parenting book, Teaching Kids to Be Good People. And tune in next week when my guest will be Janine Halloran, licensed mental health counselor and founder of EncouragePlay.com. Until then, happy parenting.